we are overly confident in our understanding of the world. We're overly confident that we understand the world. Uh, we are much too certain in in the decisions we make, and and we suppress doubt. We're, we're designed to really suppress doubt and uncertainty. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I have the honor to interview a Nobel laureate who has devoted his life to understanding the way we think. His work has interesting links not only to my new research topic of cognitive biases, but also on humanity's continuing self-examination of consciousness and the mysteries of the mind. Please press like on your podcast app if you enjoy what you're hearing, and feel free to share it with your friends, and come chat with us on our Facebook group, The Rational View. Berkeley-trained psychologist Dr. Daniel Kahneman was co-recipient of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002 for his integration of psychological research into economic science. His pioneering work examined human judgment and decision-making under uncertainty. He was a lecturer and a professor of psychology at the Hebrew University, the University of British Columbia, the University of California, Berkeley, and Princeton University, where he was Eugene Higgins Professor for Psychology and a professor of public affairs at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Kahneman's groundbreaking Nobel research showed that people's inferences of future probabilities are not strictly rational, but show various biases. In 2011, he received the Talcott Parsons Prize from the Academy of Arts and Sciences, and also that year he published the best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which highlights two different ways in which people make decisions. His books include Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment, and in 2013, he was awarded the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom. Dr. Kahneman, welcome to The Rational View. Glad to be here. Now, your work gained fame in showing that people were not rational actors. One of my motivations in starting this Rational View podcast is to mitigate the impacts of this problem that you've highlighted on society. Your research in this area, I think, is summarized in your in your book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. What was the prevailing thinking before your work uh, came on the mainstream as to how people made decisions? Well, I mean, the, there were several lines of thinking. In psychology, the idea that people are fully rational never took hold. Uh, and the source of mistakes, uh, that, of the mistake that people made, uh, viewed as motivational or emotional. In economics, there was a model of uh, e rational economic agents, which was, in a sense, very extreme because uh, the model is really a logic of decision-making, and being rational, according to that theory, means obeying the logic of probability and, and, and choice. And... What is really important is rationality is, is a non-starter in rationality in that very narrow sense. 
that it is defined in economics. And it's a non-starter because it demands all your beliefs to be in, and your preferences to be internally consistent. So it's not logical consistency that if I tell you A and B, uh, A, that A implies B and A is the case, then B is the case. It's without any premises. When you examine beliefs one at a time, you will find that the whole network of beliefs and preferences is consistent. This is absurd as a psychological hypothesis. So the idea that people are not rational in in the very strict sense of economic, you know, decision theoretic rationality, that is not even news. That is totally obvious. And it really doesn't mean that people are not reasonable. People can be quite reasonable and not be rational by that extremely narrow definition. And, and I think our work has been very frequently misunderstood in that sense. That is, what we are really showing is the axioms of probability theory do not, I mean, people's intuitions do not obey the axioms of probability theory. They do not obey the axioms of utility theory. That is, there are systematic violations of these axioms. But when you say that people are not rational, it's frequently understood as if they're irrational. And that is something we never said. Okay. Okay. That's good. So in your in your book, you outline two different um, modes of thinking, uh, a fast and a, and a slow mode of thinking. Could you uh, maybe present the basic thesis of your work and, and tell us how you came to the conclusion uh, that, that this is how we think? Well, uh, the distinction between two modes of thinking is not mine. I borrowed it and I elaborated on it. It's a familiar one in psychology. And, and the basic idea is that some thoughts just happen to you and other thoughts you've got to produce. So if I say two plus two, something happens to you, you get the number four. You didn't work to produce it, it just occurred. In fact, you couldn't prevent it. It occurred automatically. Uh, when I say 17 times 24, something completely different happens. I mean, what you remember is a program that might enable you to perform this multiplication, but uh, there is nothing automatic. And if you execute the program, several things will happen. You have to execute it serially and its work and your pupil will dilate, your heart rate will accelerate, a lot of things will happen to you if you exert effort. So one type of thinking, one way ideas come to mind is automatic and effortless, and the other is effortful and typically controlled. Mm. Okay, that's a, that's a very clear distinction, and I think we would all agree that that is something that we can experience and 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 we understand how this goes on. Um, and this, I think, also plays into cognitive bias because our our fast thinking is not uh, following, as you say, the the logical rules of of inference. It's following our feelings and our our predispositions. Um, so this is how I think biases can enter uh, our decision-making process. Uh, which innate biases do you think are most damaging for society? Well, uh, 
The biases we're talking about are cognitive biases, and they arise from the way that your intuition works. And intuition works basically by, by a series of shortcuts. And most of the time, those shortcuts work perfectly well. So intuition is mostly very good. But those shortcuts are also produce systematic predictable mistakes. And uh, that's how the biases arrive. So we have to keep the biases in perspective. They are side effects of a process that normally works very well. So it's not that the whole machine is defective. The, the machinery is quite effective, but, but it is not built to obey the axioms of logic. Um, you asked what is most damaging. That's a completely different question. Um, I have sometimes said, you know, it's, a, it's, it's also a very difficult question to answer, and the answer is arbitrary, but um, I have singled out overconfidence as a basic flaw. That is, we, we are overly confident in our understanding of the world. We're overly confident that we understand the world. Uh, we are much too certain in, in the decisions we make. And, and we suppress doubt. We're, we're designed to really suppress doubt and uncertainty. So in that sense, that's a very serious, that's a major characteristic of the human mind, the suppression of doubt. Yeah, I think that's been highlighted recently in the in the replication crisis in the humanities. Um, you know, scientists are are busy working about their theories and doing statistical analyses, and uh, they they've recently tried to reproduce major uh, groundbreaking studies uh, that seem to have changed thoughts in in amongst. The scientific community, and they've been unable to reproduce, you know, half of these studies. Uh, so, and I think this is maybe a side effect of that—that that overconfidence. We, we we feel that the world is a predictable place that we can understand. Well, that that is certainly the case. That is that um, <clears throat> there is a pre a predisposition to believe in certain results makes you prone to deceive yourself, and mostly. The replication crisis, uh, it, it involves statistical shortcuts that people honestly believed in, and it involves a fair amount of self-deception, that is, uh, that people genuinely believe in their results, but in fact the evidence for their belief is much weaker than they think. And uh, that's... That certainly has happened in psychology in a major way, and, and it's affected uh, several findings, including some that were reported in my book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that haven't held up. Interesting. I, I know I've, I was looking at a, a, a recent publication and analyzing um, the publications of significant statistical effects in a particular journal, and it looked like just a the distribution of results was like a bell curve with the, with the center cut out. Basically, nobody's publishing null results, but you can see that the entire thing looks like a, a null result. <laughs> so it's, it's very interesting, the, the publication bias. There certainly is a publication bias that you publish interesting results, and 
null results are typically not very interesting, so they don't get published. That's certainly the case. Yes. So I've, I've done a, a series of podcasts on different theories of consciousness and how the mind works. And I think one of the biggest confounding factors in this field of study is that there seem to be a lot of different definitions of consciousness and sentience and awareness. And we don't really have good, solid understanding of what's going on and what defines conscious awareness. We, we can experience it, but we can't describe it very well. And you talk about these two agents in the mind. There's an experiencing self and a remembered self. Could you explain a little bit about what you mean by these two selves? Well, uh, again, you know, the two agents in the mind is a metaphor, but the point is that there are two ways of defining happiness. That's the way that uh, this began. And happiness in one sense is just what you live through. You know, you, if you're living a pleasant life, you're a happy person. But then there are occasions, and those occasions tend to be quite meaningful, where you're thinking about your life. So there is happiness in living, and then there is happiness in thinking about your life. And thinking about your life involves looking back and evaluating. And I, I describe those as two selves because it turns out that the remembering self, the one that evaluates past experiences, doesn't really know very well what the experiencing self has gone through. That is, our knowledge of our own past and our ability to evaluate past experiences is limited in highly systematic ways. And that's what gave rise to that distinction. Yes, I think you said uh, in your book uh, that each moment of the experiencing self lasts about three seconds, most of them vanishing without a trace. And what gets remembered by the remembering self are changes in the story, significant, intense moments in the story, and the ending. And that's an interesting observation, that this difference in how we, how we experience or how we feel about an experience. There's two completely different perspectives. Well, yeah, you can follow experience in real time and, and see, you know, happiness or misery in real time. And then you can look at what people remember and evaluate, and, and those are indeed uh, quite different. Uh, the, the, basically, our memories and the way that we reconstruct the past, they're stories. They're best understood as stories. And stories are connected events, causally related, but one element that is fairly arbitrary in a story is time. That is, a story is really very compressed in time. And you can say things, or oh, they lived happily ever after, or, or 10 years passed. But those 10 years that passed were 10 years of living, which in the story you completely discard. So the, the story perspective, that's the remembering and evaluating self, and and you know, the other perspective is what we do as we experience life. What makes the distinction important, I think, is that to some extent you can say that it's the remembering self that makes decisions. 
That is, that we are, when we make decisions that engage, that commit us to future actions or to future consequences, when we make those decisions, we are, in effect, in a state not of living but of thinking about life. And we're affected by the stories that we have of the past because when we make decisions that are informed by the past, they're not informed directly by the past. They're informed by the stories that we hold in our mind about the past. And if those stories are biased, so are the decisions. Interesting. This actually um, brings up uh, a parallel to me. I, I recently interviewed Dr. Andrew Budson, who's uh, published a new theory of consciousness, and he suggests that everything we do in the present moment is done unconsciously by the existing neural networks of the brain and the body. And he points out that physiological data suggests that conscious thought and awareness is delayed by you know several milliseconds from the actual reactions of the body. And, you know, our conscious mind is actually just focusing on memories from many unconscious streams that come into our brain. And the conscious part of us is manipulating these threads of memory to influence and adapt future actions towards a goal-oriented uh, being. This, this seems to fit with your theory of, of the two agents. Well, it's certainly is the case that we're unconscious of not conscious of most of what happens in our mind. That is, we're aware typically of, of the outcomes of the process. We're not aware of the process itself, except if it is extended over time under voluntary control, in which case we are aware of it. But most of our thinking, you know, what goes on as you and I talk, the words that come out of my mouth, uh, I don't experience that as planning each word separately. You know, there's a process, uh, I have a vague idea of where this is going, and then the words just come tumbling out of my mouth. Yeah, and that's also why, you know, you can make errors, like you didn't intend to do that. Uh, oops. Uh, then you try to adjust your, your network so that you don't do that again, and you, you apply more focus the next time. And you can see this in an evolutionary context as well, how the how the mind may come about to uh, help you be, to become more goal-oriented in your remembered self. So one, one thing you mentioned, uh, this, this thing about the experiencing self moments lasting about three seconds, this has interesting parallels with uh, uh, very teachings of, of you know meditative religions for example the buddhists say that uh, our awareness is a series of short stochastic experiences how did you come to this observation or conclusion well you know i was this is again fairly arbitrary but there were experiments done that i was referring to and there were old experiments on the duration of the psychological present that is well, Clearly, it's not an instant, but clearly the psychological present is, is an extended moment in time. And, you know, the estimate of three seconds came from there. I, I wouldn't swear by it. I think your work has uh, been very, um, very rigorous in a scientific sense uh, for the humanities. I think you've brought uh, a kind of a rigorous uh, study uh, definition to the humanities through your work. I, it seems that you know your background was 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 very 
very much into controlling variables and trying to do uh, statistically good good work. Can you comment a little bit on 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 where that came from and how you put that together? You know, psychologists, my kind of psychologist, we view ourselves as scientists. I mean, it's a fairly soft science, but but it's a science. So we we do experiments. We uh, we design theories, we do statistics, and we our theorizing is much sketchier than it is in physical sciences and and less complete than it is say in economics. Um, so we are more oriented to running experiments and developing fairly low level local theories of of phenomena. That's that's what we do, but we we view ourselves as a scientist. And so, f- from your from your work on on pointing out how we make decisions, what do you think is the most important uh, result that you bring to this uh, to our understanding of, of mind, and what you would like to see people focusing on as uh, going forward? As to the second question. You know what I would like to see people focus on. I don't believe in forecasting, uh, you know, future scientific developments, and and I and I don't really have preferences about the future uh, of science. It's it's going to be whatever it's going to be, and it belongs to the young and not to me. And uh, uh, in terms of you know what what comes up out of our research that is perhaps the most significant, is something I would call, I have called, narrow framing. And that means that we make decisions quite narrowly. In in a particular context, we make a decision, whereas a rational being would actually have a policy and would have a much longer horizon and integrate decisions so that they they bring about good consequences in aggregate over time, but this is not the way that we that we normally think. We normally are quite narrow in the evidence that we consider, and quite narrow in the range of time that we consider or that we put a lot of weight on. The first one, which I've called "What You See Is All There Is," or with the Ati in in my book. Uh, is really that what we don't see to a first approximation doesn't exist. That is, we make we make our judgments and and to a large extent our decisions on the basis of what is visible or at the top of our mind, and that's the the narrowness of the window in which we operate. This this seems to be a major characteristic of of human cognition that it's limited in time, in space, and in the evidence that it can consider. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is is take take more time maybe to make decisions, to think in a bigger picture view. How, now, obviously, this is something that people aren't doing because of the fact that we're uh, intuitive creatures in our, in our reactions. Is there anything that people can do to, to be more... Uh, thoughtful about their uh, decision making and and to not make these mistakes more often. 
I think, you know, there is one general piece of advice here. You cannot live by slow thinking. You cannot substitute reasoning for intuition. It would be completely ineffective. We would be effectively paralyzed. But there are decisions that we make or judgments that we make that are truly significant. And when they are significant and the stakes are high, then slowing down is a good idea. Slowing down, collecting evidence, uh, getting advice, uh, that's the best advice that we can give. Now, it's not very deep advice. My grandmother would have given the same advice, but when, when all is said and done, that is roughly the limit of what you know, we can hope that people will do. Uh, that when, when it's necessary to control their intuition, that they will recognize that this is the time at which this is necessary and that they will have the tools to operate effectively in, in that different mode. Yeah, I think uh, society could, could use a little more rationality. Uh, so that, that's been my goal to, to help people to slow down and, and, and address some of the biases. Uh, so I'm going to be working towards uh, maybe uh, discussing more cognitive biases in future episodes. Uh, so I'm going to try to dig in a little bit and, and, and outline one or two of these things perhaps uh, for my listeners. So uh, I really appreciate your insights uh, into your work. And I'm very honored that you, you took the time to chat with us today. Uh, any last words you'd like to, to, uh, to give of advice? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't give advice. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carmen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.